morning, church. Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. Just kind of keep your, your finger on the page. We'll get to that in just a minute or two. You know, today it seems that one of the complaints that people of faith, and, and to be clear by that I mean people of all faiths frequently have, is that the media is biased against us. You know, you certainly see that uh, regarding the portrayal of Muslims as terrorists, as, as people that we need to be frightened of. You see that in the portrayal of Hasidic Jews in the Netflix series like Unorthodox. And you certainly see that regarding the media uh, representation of serious followers of Jesus. I mean, consider this. Consider the coverage of churches during the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, there are about 380,000 churches in America. And nearly every one of those 380,000 churches chose to follow their state health department's recommendations regarding closing the church during the initial onset of the pandemic. But the churches that we heard about during the pandemic were, of course, those handful of churches which with publicity-seeking pastors who chose to disregard health department guidelines. You know, maybe you can recall reading about the pastor who chose to keep his church open and then tragically died of COVID-19. Those were the stories that we saw. What we didn't hear, we didn't hear of the tens of thousands of stories of charity during the pandemic or the millions of Christians who were connected with one another online. We didn't hear of the Christians who checked on their neighbors daily. Uh, we didn't hear of the Christians who stood on the porches and prayed for their sick neighbors, or the Christians who delivered meals to the front steps of shut-ins. See, they continued to do church in safe and God-honoring ways. We do not tend to hear of churches like ours who earnestly sought God's will during this time. Many of you may not be aware of this, but the elders met every week, and we met for hours to pray and discuss how we were to minister to this church, how we were to protect it, and how we were to honor and obey God. We sought God's face through prayers and intense, sometimes even heated discussion. We tend not to hear about Christian ministries like Samaritan's Purse, who went to New York City when it was the epicenter of the pandemic and set up free field hospitals uh, to treat those who could not get a bed in the other hospitals. And the point to this is this. You see, over time, the weight of media and societal perceptions of what it means to be a serious follower of Jesus, it can wear us down. The general perception of serious followers of Jesus can cause us to want to hide our light, to, to not go public showing the world that, you know what, I'm one of those followers. Think about this. I mean, think about all the negative stereotypes regarding Jesus' followers. The culture says this. If you are a serious follower of Jesus, you are almost certainly a bigot or a hypocrite. You hate immigrants. You hate women. You hate gays. You hate the environment. If you're a serious follower of Jesus, you almost certainly reject science. Your pro-life position only works before birth, but you're anti-life for anyone after birth. You're backward. You're, you're, you're ignorant. You're wildly political. Now, 
Do some of these stereotypes apply to some people? Probably. Do they apply to most followers of Jesus that I know? Not at all. Now, the Apostle Peter wrote a letter in the first century to Christians who were similarly being stigmatized by their culture. In their day, they were seen as disloyal to the government. They were seen as a a, a foreign element, traitors to the community. And Peter was concerned that his first century audience was, was getting worn down by all the criticism and all the stigmatizing and would become ashamed of Jesus. So in today's text, we're going to get to today's text, I promise. In today's text, we see that one way that Peter offers hopes to followers of Jesus is to speak to them and to us about our identity. And Peter's message is that we are not just what people say about us. So I've called today's message, Finding Hope, by discovering your identity. Let us bow our heads and pray. Father, you have created us. You have created us in your image, to be your image bearers. You have created us, Lord, to stand before you and worship you and praise you. And Father, you have uh, saved us. You have brought us to the foot of your throne and you have welcomed us with open arms. It is you, Lord, who gives us our identity. Father, I pray this morning as we look at your word that you reveal who we are in your eyes, that you bless us. And Father, I pray that you let us bless you. Father, in this and in all things, we pray in your name and in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. So our scripture today is found in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. I'll read the scripture. Please follow along in your Bibles. Coming to him... As to a living stone rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone elect, Precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling, and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. But you, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Did you notice how much stone and rock imagery we found in these verses. Six times Peter mentioned stones or rocks. And I think it's not too much of a stretch to remind ourselves that this text was written by a man who was born uh, with the name Simon, son of Jonah, but who Jesus nicknamed the rock. Peter's nickname 
from Jesus, it meant rock. Cephas, it was Cephas in Aramaic or, or Petros in Greek. It means rock. So I'm sure that Peter spent a lot of time meditating on rocks and stones. So he begins this passage using the metaphor of rocks over and over again. And he encourages Christians to hope in the midst of negative portrayals by society and by the media by having us consider what people say about us. So I want, let's, that's where we're going to start. We're going to start by focusing on what people say about Jesus. Okay, And here's what we read. In 1 Peter 2, verses 7 and 8, we read, Therefore, to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, being disappointed to the word, disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Now, the point of these verses is that Jesus is always the dividing line between people. You are either for Jesus or you're against him. There's no neutrality here. And for those who believe, Jesus is a chosen and precious cornerstone. Jesus becomes the foundation of our lives. And whether we're in pandemic or, 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 or when we're unemployed or when we are lonely or when we are afraid of being sick, when we are overwhelmed by concern for a loved one, Jesus is that precious cornerstone. And we have chosen by faith to build our lives on him and to seek refuge in him so that we stand no matter what storm comes our way. Jesus is the precious cornerstone. And like the cornerstone on a building, Jesus sets the angles for all of our lives. But for others, Jesus is the stone that makes them stumble and a rock that makes them fall. Peter refers to the rock that makes them fall in verse 8 when he says, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. Literally, what Peter is saying here is that Jesus is the rock of offense. And the Greek word here used here is scandalo, with scandalo. And, 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 and from, that, from that word, we derive the English word scandal or offense. And what he's saying is this, Jesus divides families. He said that about himself in Matthew. In Matthew 10, verses 34 through 36, Jesus said this, Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemy will be those of his own household. So, if you ever find that someone, maybe even someone in your own family, is against you because you are a serious follower of Jesus, or, or that the larger society stereotypes you, or the media stigmatizes you, well, listen, Jesus told us ahead of time that that was going to happen, that people would divide over him. Jesus is the point of offense, and Jesus scandalizes people. His claims cause offense. I mean, think about it. Jewish people are scandalized by the thought that a man, a mere man, would be called God and that we would worship this man. Muslims are scandalized by the claim that Jesus is the Son of God. Hindus are scandalized by the claim that Jesus is the unique incarnation of God, not just one of many incarnations. 
postmoderns are scandalized by the claim that Jesus is the only way to come to the Father. Proud people are scandalized by the claim that they need Jesus to be saved, that they can't be saved by their own goodness or their own moral exertion. Controlling people are scandalized by the claim that they must surrender control of their lives to Jesus as Lord, that they can't be saved by controlling every circumstance and every person around them. Wounded people are scandalized by Jesus' demand that we forgive if we want to be forgiven. Vain people, greedy people, angry people, every one of us is scandalized by Jesus. He is a rock of offense. But for those who have open hearts and are also willing to take a second look at Jesus, for, for those who are willing to allow his words to penetrate them and, 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 and who reflect on his life, Jesus is a precious cornerstone. He is the foundation upon which we build our identities. So we've been talking about how the culture views Christians. But let us consider this. Let us consider what God said about Jesus. You see, Jesus may be rejected by most of humanity, but he is precious to God. Peter loves this word precious. He used it back in 1 Peter 18 and 19, where he said, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And it was important for Jesus to hear what God his father said about him. Jesus knew that his identity was found in God. So in Matthew 3.17, we read God's word describing Jesus and, and, and his identity. God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God said, Jesus, you are the son I love, and with you I am well pleased. Friend, in the midst of this time, when everything about us is, is changing so quickly, when everything seems to be crashing and burning, how do you form your identity? By your work? Well, what if you're unemployed? By your net worth? You know, if your net worth determines your self-worth, then your self-worth has taken a beating over these last few months. By how much you're doing for God? You know, it's easy especially for any of us who are, are, are Christian leaders or, or, or pastors to draw our identity from what we are doing for God. But who are we when we are not able to gather together? One of the major existential questions raised by the pandemic was who are you when people and things and activity are taken out of your life? And there's no mistake about it, friends. There's, there's no neutrality when it comes to Jesus. Let us think just a little bit more deeply about this. So how should we form our identities? Let me start with this. I want you to consider the wrong way of forming your identity. The wrong way is listening to what people say about us. A number of years ago, I heard a man named Doug Murren share, uh, uh, share his testimony. And Doug had a daughter. Her name was Rasa. And as a result of difficulties during her birth, Reza was born with cerebral palsy. She walked clumsily. She had, she had braces on her legs and she had crutches. 
And Doug told the story about one day how he came home and, and he could tell as he walked into the house that his wife was upset. And of course he asked her what was wrong and she pointed to Reza, he pointed, she pointed to Reza's room. And at this time, Reza was about 13 years old. She was an adolescent, and she was this wonderfully sweet Christian girl who was incredibly empathetic and generous towards others. She was really a kind young woman. Well, Doug went into her bedroom, and he sat down on the bed next to his daughter, and he said to her, Reza, what's the matter? And of course, like any 13-year-old girl would say, she said nothing. <laughs> She put her head on her dad's chest and she began to sob uncontrollably. And he asked again, honey, tell me what's wrong. And she told him this. She said, it's school today. The teacher asked what we would like to be when we grow up. And I answered that I want to be a ballerina and I want to be a mom. And Melissa pointed at me and began laughing and she said, you'll never be a ballerina. You're a cripple. And the only boy who will ever marry you is somebody who is blind. Have you ever had someone say something to you that has cut you to your very core? You know, many of us can remember things that were said to us when we were children, cruel things, things about our future, our destiny, and perhaps things that were spoken to us by a parent or a loved one or somebody else who we, 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 we counted on to support us. You know, things like, you'll never amount to anything, that you're a loser, you're just like your father. You know what? It's easy to remember those cutting words you heard at school from, or, or, or from spouses or from boyfriends or girlfriends. How do we overcome all the negative messages that we received about ourselves? How do we overcome all the negative messages that we've said about ourselves? How do we continue to hope for more, believe for more about who we are? Friends, those vicious criticisms can become our identities if we don't know who we really are. So please listen carefully as I tell you of what the Bible says is the right way to form our identity. Okay, Let's start with this. In this scripture, it is important to see that everything that Peter says about the Christian identity in this passage, everything that he says, it is corporate, it is communal, it's not just aimed at us as individuals. So in verse 5, we read, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In other words, what Peter is saying is that we are not just individual disconnected stones. Rather, we are building a spiritual house, a temple created by stones dug up from all over the world and, and transported here and carefully assembled. Okay, Friends, that's what Crossroads Christian Fellowship is. We are a temple of stones that God has gathered and assembled into a church. And Peter is speaking to us about our corporate identity. Peter doesn't simply address us as individuals. All of this language is communal. All of it is corporate. And it's really important that you see this. The language Peter uses for our identity is not individualistic. It's communal. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, again. But you are a chosen generation a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, 
that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not attained mercy, but now have attained mercy. See, Peter is talking about a group, a people, a nation, not you as an individual. And what does all this mean? Well, what it means is this. It means that the way that you and I should form our identities is by being part of a larger community. If you seek counsel today through a, a secular counsel concerning discovering your identity, the counsel that you will receive will likely focus on you as an individual. You know, the counsel might sound something like this. You know how you can figure out who you are? Look inside yourself. Figure out what your dreams are. Get in touch with the real you. After all, your goal in life should be to be yourself. Have any of you ever heard this saying, you be you? We hear that all over the place anymore. Anybody ever heard that? You be you. You do you. Now, I would suggest to you that if you focus on you do you, that you likely be going to hell. You know, a million times over each day, we're told to look inside ourselves to discover our own truth because that's how we figure out who we are. We are told to take this personality test or this temperament test, and everything is focused on you as an individual. We are told that that's how you discover your identity. But Peter gives us more profound wisdom. The way that you find your identity is not by looking into yourself, but by attaching yourself to a community that is bigger than you. That way, the way that you find your identity is by attaching yourself to a community that will help define you. Get caught up in something larger than yourself. You know, the greatest institutions in our society are marked by this ability to shape an individual's identity. Anyone here ever heard of Morehouse College? Morehouse College was the alma mater of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And if you attend Morehouse, you are going to be shaped by that college for life. When you graduate, you will forever be a Morehouse man. Or think about this. Think about the United States Marine Corps. Do we have any Marines here? Really? There you go, Bill. I knew that. You know... People join and they get swept up into something bigger than themselves. No matter their race, their creed, their color, they identify first as Marines. Should you ever meet an old Marine Corvette and ask him, were you once a Marine? He is almost assuredly, correct me if I'm wrong, Bill, going to reply, I'm still a Marine. You're a Marine for life. Is that right? Get great institutions in society catch us up in something bigger than ourselves. And friends, that's what a great church should do. Not just be a collection of individuals attempting to meet our individual needs, but a community bigger than ourselves that we get swept up in, a community that shapes our identity for life. And as a pastor, that's what I want for you. Whether you stay here at Crossroads or whether you move to Albuquerque or Timbuktu, I want you to say forever that my life has been marked in the most positive way by being part of Crossroads Christian Fellowships, that Crossroads is part of me and that I am forever part of Crossroads. So how else do we form our identities? Well, I would suggest to you that we form our identities by building something together. I recently read a book 
by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, and it was called The Home We Build Together. And in this book, he points out in the Bible that the description of the creation of the entire universe, the whole universe, found in the book of Genesis, is covered in a mere 34 verses. 34 verses that describe how God created the entire universe. But if you turn to the book of Exodus, when describing the building of the tabernacle, which is a man-made building for the worship of God, a third of the book is taken up with the description of the building. You know, Rabbi Sachs asked the question, why should the building of this one structure, with all of its detailed instructions about the length of the beams and the different kind of wood and the kind of thread to sew the curtain, why does it take so much space in the Bible? Why so much attention being paid to the building of the tabernacle? And he says that the answer is because the Israelites were not yet a people. They were an oppressed and separated groups of tribes and individuals. And he says this, to turn a group of individuals into a covenantal nation, they must build something together. A people is made by creating something, or our identities are formed then by building something together. So what is, the, what is it that we are building together here at Crossroads? What are we building as Crossroads? What is the great building project that every church ought to be working on that gives our individual lives a sense of purpose and identity and hope? Well, Peter tells us what the building project is in verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There are two dimensions to this. One of them is upward. We declare God's praises to God. The other is outward, towards our community. We show people through words and through action how wonderful Jesus Christ is and what he means to us. And friends, this is really practical, okay? Uh, I mean, it, it, it's as easy as inviting someone to come to worship. Reach out to a neighbor. Call someone you know who may be lonely. Serve your neighbor. You see, every time that we do these things, we are proclaiming the praises of Jesus, the one who called you out of darkness and into the marvelous light. So how do we discover our true identities? We've talked about being part of a larger community. We talked about building something together. And finally, by listening to God. So I, I talked a little bit about the story of uh, uh, Reza's story a little early. She was the young uh, woman born with cerebral palsy who was made fun of her by her class because she said she wanted to be a ballerina. And a girl in her class pointed at her and said, you'll never be a ballerina, you're crippled, and the only boy who will ever marry you is somebody who is blind. Well, here's the thing. Reza could have listened to that girl. Reza could have let that girl define her identity. But you know what her dad told her? He said, sweetheart, you have a long life ahead of you, and you may walk like this for your entire life. And there are going to be other people who make fun of you. There are going to be people who stare at you. And you're going to have to decide right now who you are going to listen to. Are you going to live your life listening to what everybody else says about you? Or are you going to live your life based on what Jesus says about you? And Rasa wrapped her arms around her dad's neck, and she said, Daddy, I'm going to listen to what Jesus says about me. And her dad said, what does Jesus say? And Rasa said, Jesus said, I'm going to be a ballerina.
Now, Doug walked out of that room. He talked about how he walked out of that room with tears running down his face. And he thought to himself, yes, one day when Jesus returns, Reza is going to be a ballerina. But then he felt, he talks about how he felt the spirit of God speak to him and say, no, Doug, every time your daughter walks across the room with her leg braces on and with her crutches, she's doing a dance for me. You know, the point here is this. Having Christian hope in dark times is a choice regarding who you're going to listen to about your identity. Having Christian hope is a choice regarding whose opinion matters to you in your life. Will you listen to what the whole world says about Jesus or his followers? Or like Reza, do you listen to what God, our Father in heaven, says? Do you need hope? during these times of pandemic and economic difficulty and social collapse, if you do, listen to what God says about you. Again, 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10, but you are a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Listen, brothers and sisters, are you defined by your association with this assembly of God's children? Are you a member of Christ's church? Are you committed and involved in building this community for the glory of God? If you are, then you know who you are. You know your purpose. You are a blessed and beloved child of God. If you're here today and you do not find your identity in who God calls you to be, let me ask you something. How confident are you that you are truly loved? How confident are you that you are significant? I mean, how many dead-end roads have you walked down thinking that this is the one, this is the one that's going to lead me to discover who I truly am? Friend, let me tell you something. There is only one road that will lead you to discover who you are, and it is the road that will lead you to Jesus. And it is the road that will lead you to become a stone in his church. It is the only way. So if you hear my voice today, and if you are convicted that no matter how deeply you search, no matter how deeply you search yourself, that you keep coming up empty, please make this the day that you surrender to Jesus. Let us bow our heads and pray. Father, what an amazing thing it is that you have called me, any of us, to be part of this community to be part of this great building project, to be that you have given us an identity, that you have given us a hope at all times because of who you are and who you created us to be. What an amazing thing it is to be an image bearer of the God who created all. What an amazing thing it is to be secure in knowing that you love us, that you love us so much that you sent your son to die for us. Father, I pray for all my brothers and sisters that you just show us how to live out that truth. 
how to live a life where we can glorify you and live in the truth of who you created us to be. Father, I pray that you bless us. I pray that you use us, and I pray that you let us glorify your name. Send us out from this place, and let us be in all things. Let us glorify your name. Pray this in your name and for your glory. In the name of your precious son, Jesus. Amen.